Hi, listeners. Our subject today was, in the words of Robert S. Levine, a social activist and reformer, black nationalist, abolitionist, physician, reporter and editor, explorer, jurist, realtor, politician, publisher, educator, army officer, ethnographer, novelist, and political and legal theorist. He also had a bomb mustache, but that's not something Levine says. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's not doing loads of things. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's leaving off things, as, as we'll learn over the course of this episode. So welcome to episode 20, Martin R. Delaney. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. I first learned about Delaney in this list of black science fiction and fantasy writers that was put together by Nisi Shaw, who does all sorts of awesome things. She's a journalist. She's a science fiction fantasy writer. Um, she has this story on the LeVar Burton Reads podcast called Black Betty, which just blew me away. Um, I still think about it all the time. Yeah, so she put together this list of black science fiction and fantasy writers called A Crash Course in the History of Black Science Fiction, which sort of, she wrote it at this moment when there's this real kind of tug of war in the genre over who gets to have ownership, who gets to say that they are science fiction fantasy writers. And uh, as in most of these kinds of ownership battles, you know, there are like the, um, <sighs> the the contingent who are like just old white guys who are grumpy about any sort of representation or diversity and then there's the people who recognize that um actually the genre has always been diverse and it's only re sort of recently that it's been dominated by white men and even still like a lot of the vibrant writers are not white or men um, anyway, so she put together this list um, in this kind of moment of conversation that's still ongoing, but I think it was probably around 2016 um, when it kind of really came to a head that I knew about um, most recently. And then um, the first name on it is Martin R. Delaney for this novel he wrote called Blake in the Huts of America, which basically fictionalizes the Nat Turner Rebellion and imagines what would happen if Nat Turner had succeeded. And don't worry if you're rusty on your American history. We will kind of go into more detail about what the Nat Turner Rebellion was a little bit later in the episode. I'm like, I am by no means an expert in science fiction, but I feel like the best science fiction does come from um, marginalized groups because they're the people that are imagining a better world and a different world. Mm -hmm. You know, they are not invested in the current hegemony. Yeah. 
they have reasons to be thinking about these things. Absolutely. And as we noted in our Mary Shelley episodes, sort of the modern science fiction fantasy as it exists now was popularized by Mary Shelley. So, um, yeah. yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> as Shaw points out, there's a long history of black science fiction and fantasy writers, uh, history, but also a thriving present moment of black science fiction and fantasy writers. Um, and so it's important to kind of make that really obvious, make it an ongoing part of the conversation, like bring these writers in, um, which is why we're talking about it on Victorian scribblers, because yeah, yes, in the 19th century we had science fiction fantasy writers of African descent. Um, and Shaw points out something that I think is really important as we head into this episode and think about science fiction and fantasy and how Delaney's work fits into that sort of paradigm. Um, and so she writes, quote, The distinction between fantasy and science fiction is often blurred, and it's especially hard to make out their boundaries when exploring the writing of African-descended authors. Why? Because access to the scientific knowledge from which science fiction often derives has been denied to people of the African diaspora for much of history, and the classification of what is and is not scientific knowledge hasn't been under our control. It's frequently a matter of dispute. Also, it's sometimes difficult to understand the history of black science fiction without reference to the history of black fantasy, end quote. Before we get into the episode proper, I think it's important to just note some terminology. So the first of it is that a lot of titles of events and documents we'll be using um, or we'll be referencing use kind of antiquated racial terminology. As Courtney did in the Christmas episode, we're not going to say it, but we will make clear when we have changed words. Um, and while we're talking terminology, I just wondered if we could take a pause to talk about his name. And I just want everyone who has watched Bon Appetit's video to imagine Bradley only saying, Delaney. This is <laughs> funny. But yeah, so Delaney, as anyone who is interested in kind of etymology and the origin of names might know, that's an Irish name. And as with many people at this time, it probably came from the people who owned his parents or his father. Um, in the slightly verbose word of Rollin, who we'll talk about a little bit more, she says, he expresses himself always as though it was distasteful to him, recalling associations of the ser servitude of his family. So that's his name. Obviously, it's what we're going to use to refer to him. But I think it's just important to note that there are kind of um, connotations of that name. Yeah. And it kind of, it ties into the history that we're talking about. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think Roland goes on to say, and I'm just paraphrasing here because I don't have it, in, I don't have the biography in front of me, but that he was sort of always waiting around to sort of find out what his name should be. And that's why he never changed it. Um, I guess he was just kind of waiting for it to come to him, and it and it didn't. Yeah. Although there's also, like, you know, the complicated legal steps of changing one's name, and then once you've kind of made a career or multiple careers in using a name, it's even harder to change it because people know you as that name, so. I'm, I'm sure that rings very true or familiar to any 
women who are in academia and potentially getting married and wanting to take their partner's name, or anyone who is potentially wanting to take their partner's name, you have to decide when you start what name you're going to use. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, sometimes you, the person you are when you make that decision isn't always the person you become, and you might look back and be kind of sad about it, but... Yeah. But then sometimes your partner has the same surname as a great heroine of a Braddon novel, so it works out, really. Yes. Yeah, that's also true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I just felt like it was important to flag the issue with the name up top. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know. We are two white women talking about this, so if anyone has any suggestions or things that we can improve on we're not asking you to do the labor but if there is something please do let us know yeah i don't think either of us specialize in african-american literature or um or american literature for that matter (laughs) of the 19th century um yeah so we're hoping love to bring on some scholars who do specialize in that for some quick interviews so if you're interested please reach out to us and we can add context to the conversation we're having today yeah so before we get deeper into the life of martin robinson delaney let's take a quick trip around the world in delaney's lifetime In 1812, Congress authorizes war bonds to finance the War of 1812. In 1814, British forces destroy the Library of Congress, containing 3,000 books. And I just made a little note that it's a good job our old friend Thomas Jefferson was able to replace them. <laughs> um, but on a more serious note, it, no, I was going to say it was very awkward walking around the Library of Congress as a British person. <laughs> In 1815, Emma by Jane Austen was published by John Murray in London. In 1820, the first organised emigration of black people came back to Africa, so they go from New York to Sierra Leone. Um, the US population at the time was 9,638,453, 9, and of that, 18% were born in the US. In 1822, on February 4th, free American black people settled in Liberia, West Africa. On July 24th, 1823, slavery is abolished in Chile. Um, in August of 1831, enslaved minister Nat Turner led a rebellion against local slaveholders in Southampton County, Virginia. In 1852, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin is published. In 1857, Dred Scott versus Sanford occurs. So Dred Scott sues for his freedom, and in response, the Supreme Court declares that as Scott is not a citizen, he is not allowed to sue in federal court. Yeah, from 1861 to 1865, the American Civil War takes place. On March 30th of 1870, the 15th Amendment is adopted to the United States Constitution, and this theoretically gives uh, gives the right to vote regardless of race, but specifically gives black men the right to vote because women are still not allowed. And I said theoretically because, I mean, yeah, it's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a whole thing that's still happening to this day. Yeah, yeah. In 1885, Mark Twain publishes The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in the US. 
Yeah, so I just wanted to note, um, so we compiled these uh, timelines from various sources and just the language jumped out at me today because a lot of them are referring to um, uh, black people who live in America as Americans or African Americans, which, I mean, some of them would have considered themselves that, but, but, but it's still like this time when um, some of them would have not sort of identified as American. I mean, they're not really given a place or representation as citizens, as the Dred Scott case sort of highlights. So there's a real tension there that I think uh, Delaney uh, was certainly considered himself uh, an American in his lifetime, but many people didn't. Um, yeah, so just something to call your attention to. Yeah, yeah, I think Dred Scott is a, or his case is a real encapsulation of that that the state didn't consider black people americans either or black people as people which is yeah yeah so the the man of the hour on victorian scribbler's podcast martin robinson delaney was born on may 6th 1812 in charlestown virginia um, since then, state boundaries have been sort of, sh they shifted. Actually, during the lead up to the Civil War, they shifted. Um, so it's now West Virginia, because West Virginia did not want to be a slaveholding state. Um, so they split off, is what I understand. Um, and Delaney's grandparents on both sides were brought to the U.S. from Africa as slaves. His father, Samuel Delaney, was also enslaved, uh, but his mother, Patty Peace Delaney, was a free woman. Yeah, so there's some kind of, um, there's some interesting mythology around Delaney's grandparents. So his first biography, biographer, which is Rollin, who I mentioned at the start, um, that's Frank A. Rollin, and Frank is a pseudonym for Francis. Um, she writes that Delaney's grandparents were royalty, so his maternal grandfather is supposed by Rollin to be, quote, an African prince from the Niger Valley regions of Central Africa, as evidenced by the fact that his name was Shango, quote, from the great African deity of protection, end quote. Yeah, so this is, so Shango, his grandfather, uh, apparently regained his freedom after being enslaved and ended up returning to Africa, but his wife... Gracie, who also regained her freedom later, um, and by regained freedom, probably it means she saved up the money to buy herself away from slavery. Yeah. Um, she decided to stay in the U.S. and did so uh, for lived for quite a long time. So she was 107 when she died. I feel like that's impressive today, but yeah, yeah. I mean. So I guess I was reading, I saw some sort of headlines recently that the sort of emerging um, lifespan in the U.S. is 80, and that's gone down a bit, right. considering our healthcare system. Because <laughs> I feel like, it's just something we've talked about before, but um, I don't know, there's this conception that people didn't live as long then, and... Like, yes, there was more chance of dying at a young age, but if you survived past about 40, you had a just as good a chance of living to old age as you do now. 
And I think in a way, like this is really weird. I I don't want to be an an apologist for poverty, but like in in a way, if you can't afford like the fancy but almost entirely ineffective doctors, and if you can't afford like all the weird patent medicines and makeup and stuff that's like full of toxins, um, you're living a healthier lifestyle. So, um, I mean, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. No, I know. You're not saying poverty is good, actually, but actually the rich no, are kind of um, like their own worst enemies. When, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when they're taking loads of mercury for the hell of it. Yeah. Not for the hell yeah. of it, but because they think it helps. Yeah. Yeah, so um, history is complicated. Um, yeah, so Rollin writes that Delaney's parental grandfather was, quote, a chieftain captured with his family in war, sold to the slavers, and brought to America, end quote. And this grandfather, his paternal grandfather, quote, fled at one time from Virginia, where he was enslaved, taking with him his wife and two sons, end quote, to Toronto, Canada. But, um, slave hunters followed him there, um, and sort of made up this fiction that they had jurisdiction where they didn't and dragged him back to the U.S., which is why Delaney is born in Virginia. Mm. So we don't know that much more about his parents and, like, more about his mother than his father, which is such a weird reversal of what we usually know, which is more about the father than the mother. But since Patty is free... Um, she's around for more of Delaney's life and is therefore kind of... I was going to say. Yeah, included more in the documentation. And she couldn't... Um, I mean, she can read and write, which has a huge effect on the likelihood of documentation being preserved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, speaking of learning to read and write... Yeah, so uh, Patty knew how to read and write, and the reason we know this is because she, along with some other people... Um, taught Delaney to read and write. So in some places it says that he he learned to read and write from travelling salesmen or, quote, Yankee peddlers from the north. Um, That seems weird to me. It seems like it's, like, trying to... um, So teaching uh, black people to read and write was illegal in many U.S. states at the time. Um... And so I, I feel like it's just sort of trying to act as a cover for Patty, like to, especially since it's what we hear in the early biography, yeah. like to sort of shield her from the perception that she'd have done anything illegal, um, potentially. But it could have could have been true. It could have been like these people are going to sell stuff and also like covertly as um, not missionaries but like social justice activists to teach people to read and write yeah maybe um it's not like entirely out of the realm of possibilities that's actually such a good point because my instinctive reaction to this was probably a bit knee-jerk and was like okay so here's some white men getting credits and then that a black woman did but yeah like you say it's a lot easier to say these people who passed in and out who we never saw again taught him and I mean, do they sell him the, um, so he learns to read and write from the New York Primer and Spelling Book, but maybe that's something they're selling, so that's legitimate business. Is it, like, this weird MLM, (laughs) like, 
here. <laughs> First looks free. <laughs> Recruit him into their downline. Yeah. Um, so apparently, though, uh, Delaney ends up sort of starting this illicit school with his siblings. He starts teaching his friends to read and write, just like in playtime, um, not knowing it's this big can of worms, scary thing. Um, and which I don't know. Which, like, how do you explain to your, well, how do you explain to your youngest child that it's, um, youngish, not youngest? Um, how do you explain to your young child that it's illegal for them yeah. to learn to read and write? Yeah. Like, it's such a, I don't know, it's such strange, like, yeah. Yeah. But like any form of oppression, how do you explain that to kids? Who are just very yeah. probably very wholesomely going to be like, yeah, but we're the same, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I imagine Patty knew what was going on and just sort of looked the other way. But who knows? Because she would have been having to work a lot to feed. I mean, did you ever find out how many siblings Delaney had? Because I didn't read that anywhere. It just sort of mentions that he did have some. But still, like, she's basically a single mom. And so she's got a lot of work to do to support her family. Yeah, I could never find out how many, like you say, like with you, it's just he has siblings. Um, yeah, yeah, I have no idea how many. Okay. Yeah, so Delaney and an unspecified number of siblings, possibly like playing while their mother is busy working, start teaching their fellow black children how to read and write. Um, and this begins to like you know i mean they're not like out there shouting about it on the streets but people notice they start noticing what's happening and um yeah they're they're like in their garden aren't they and then they've got white neighbors um so yeah because obviously they're kids they don't like like we were just saying they don't know that this is something they're supposed to keep secret yeah so part of this, like, the the older boys who learn to read and write um, supposedly start writing passes for the enslaved people of their neighborhood. And what I think that means, because I feel like I've come across that in my reading before, is just like a, like a, kind of like a day pass, right, to go do stuff. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, I've seen that before, um, yeah, in the context of your owner which is a horrible thing to think of as I don't know but yeah the um person who supposedly owns you writes a thing saying yes this is a person that belongs to me and they are allowed to be out in the street uh yeah so it's like a hall pass in high school but yeah a hundred times much more sinister uh yeah Um, so they're doing that, they're playing school, Rollin writes, quote, they dared to play school like other children under the shaded arbor of their mother's garden. This soon attracted the attention of their neighbors, surrounded as they were by whites, it was a hazardous and overt act, end quote. Um, and, like, in case this is, I don't know, like, if this is confusing at all, they don't, white, white slave owners, but also just white society doesn't want enslaved people to learn to read and write because that will make them more independent and able to like leave right it's a power play they, they 
it, there's nothing like good about it. It's just a hundred percent evil. I mean, that's basically describing the whole institution of slavery. So I don't know, but yeah, yeah, it's just perpetuating the power dynamic. Yeah, yeah, enforced illiteracy. Um, yeah, um, which will tie in later to. I mean, like at this point in time, from what I understand. Um, uh, enslaved people were encouraged to attend church often um, and to uh, at least hear the Bible being read. Um, that will change, actually, in the course of Delaney's lifetime for similar reasons to the whole thing about reading and writing. Um, so we might circle back to this in a little while. Yeah. So they're doing this thing of playing school in the garden and um, one of these days this guy... I, I couldn't find out who this guy was. I don't think that's recorded, is it? No, just... Just some random dude. Random white guy, yeah. probably. He comes over and basically gets the children to tell him then their names and the names of their parents. And then, what do you know, as you might expect from that, um, a few days later a man starts by the house to intimidate Patty. Um, like we said, because it's legal to teach enslaved people to read and write, um... Yeah, so they start like a campaign of intimidation against, primarily against Patty, um, which, uh, sorry, I'm trailing off, but. Yeah. This episode is not bright and sunny. No. It would be shocking to everyone to learn that the person who grew up with an enslaved father in a time of massive racism had some not fun stuff happen but yeah they're, they're kind of like intimidating Patty because they found this out and they put the names um, she tries to hide the book the children's books from these people but I think she tries to hide the children's books from the children so they don't keep reading and oh, reading oh yeah yeah um, sorry that was my uh, ambiguous wording yeah I couldn't remember exactly what well it's your ambiguous wording but also my poor memory <laughs> I can't remember what I've read. <laughs> Dissert- dissertation um, brain is real. Yeah. Rollins' writing really is dense. Um, yeah. In a yeah. very, like, 19th century style. I mean, yeah. Yeah. 19th century American, I feel like, especially, but... Um... Yeah, but so yeah, basically, so she... Patty tries to put it... Sorry. Go ahead. No, Patty tries to put a stop to it, but kind of people already know, so the cat's already out of the bag. Um, and her friend Randall Brown advises her to leave town. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, Rollin writes about this so matter-of-factly. Um, like, she was driven out of town, basically. You know, she had she had to leave town because things were going to get a lot worse than a campaign of intimidation. Um but it's something that you can't really dwell on, right? Do we know... Sorry, I, did, I didn't I did do that much um, research into Rollins' background, but we don't... Was she white? Was she... I don't know. Let's see. Frances Ann Rollin, 19th century writer, is noted as the author of Life and Public Services of Martin R. Delaney. Um, let's see. She was born in Charleston, South Carolina, to married 
uh, free black people. Um, her father was a well-to-do lumber merchant. So we might actually need to do an episode on Frances Ann Rollin at some point. Um, yeah, she was a p- political activist, teacher, and author. Yeah, so, yeah, because I was kind of wondering if... Yeah, I suspected that she... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I suspected that she might be black because um, just when she's writing about Delaney's struggle, she writes as if they're her own as well. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is the matter-of-factness just from a kind of, like, mm-hmm. we all experience this, we don't need to dwell on it point of view. And I think that a, a white abolitionist writer would be moan. There would be like a lot more sort of performative yeah. lamentation, right? A lot more rhetoric. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not to say that they wouldn't be like literally lamenting the realities, but that it would also be very performative, like yeah. to serve a political end. Um, in September of 1822, the Delaney's moved to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Um, and they live there, or Patty lives there, for the next 15 years. Um, the silver lining is that the kids actually get to go to real school here, at least for a few years. The not-so-silver lining is that I think this means that they had to move away from their father, um, although that's not really talked about at all. Yeah. Um, oh, this is where I got confused, because I was like, I thought that maybe Martin couldn't join them, but Samuel, the father, couldn't join them. Um, in Chambersburg until he bought his freedom. So Delaney gets to go to school for a few years. Um, when he has to leave school, he gets a job and eventually moves to Cumberland County, Pennsylvania. But he wasn't done pursuing his education yet. He had, he made his way back to Chambersburg after a while working in this job um, to ask his parents for permission to go to Pittsburgh to build on his education. So that makes me think that maybe Samuel has joined them by this point, um, but maybe he's just asking mom. Yeah. No, one of the sources that I read said that um, it was only a year after that Samuel joined him. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. cool. Joined them in Chambersburg. Oh, yay. Yeah, it said, actually, this is kind of backtracking, but it was kind of interesting that um, it'll come up later that Patty's, Patty works as is a really talented seamstress mm. and one source that i read seems to think that that's how she was able to gain her freedom is through her skill as a seamstress well, uh, yeah and then it, yeah one year after they moved to pennsylvania samuel is able to join wow and obviously as always we'll have all of our sources in the show notes yes yeah that's so cool yeah, it is really cool. There's something about the story that Patty is free because I don't, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but there's something about the story that Patty was free because her father was a prince. That is kind of like, if the fact is that it's because of her own talent, it's a bit of a disservice to her to say, oh, it's because her dad was a prince. Yeah. And so, like, um, these slave owners are stealing, pe- kidnapping people from their homeland and taking them across the sea. They don't give a you know, they don't care that people are princes. Yeah. You know it what? It seems a bit naive to assume that yeah. they would... Sorry, go ahead. This seems like a really good time to plug the 1619 Project. Um, I think there's a, an associated podcast, or maybe that it is a podcast. Let me pull this up. 
I have like known about it for a while, but I haven't actually listened yet. Um, yeah, this is really cool. So it's a project from the New York Times about um, is it about the first enslaved people to arrive in? Yeah. So this gives you a really good um, history of sort of the beginnings of slavery in the United States and how it has sort of how it evolved. So um, this has been sort of in the press a lot. I think it kind of came out last year. A lot of scholars contributed to this. It's been getting a lot of pushback by (sighs) stodgy old white guys again. (laughs) Can you hear the deepness of my exhaustion? (laughs) Surprised. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so you should check this out if you want to learn more and kind of get a lot more nuanced than uh, we are able to be. Um, I will definitely be checking this out, especially between now and our next episodes. Um, It's a curriculum. I I know there's also a podcast associated with it. So yeah, the 1619 Project. Um, Good place to go after this episode. A great resource, yeah. Um, yeah, having um, digressed a little bit about Patty's work as a seamstress, yeah, Samuel, um, so he does ask both, both of his parents for permission to go to Pittsburgh because Samuel at this point has bought his freedom and is with them in Chambersburg. On the 29th of July, 1831, at the age of 19, he set out on foot for Pittsburgh. And I mapped it out. That's a Depending on the route, it's 153 to 160 miles. Um, 153 miles is the most direct route. It goes through the Allegheny Mountains. Um, Apologies to locals because I'm not from this coast, so if I pronounce that wrong, (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, Appalachia is one that always tricks me too. Um, So, and Google Maps estimates that it would take about 52 hours to walk from Chambersburg to Pittsburgh under, like, perfect conditions. Um, Sensibly, Delaney does not do it all in one go. He makes it to Bedford, which is just under 60 miles and 20 hours away, and takes a job there for about a month, and then he continues on his way. Yeah, so I think we're going to leave it here for this, uh, this episode and come back with a second part. Um, so when we get back, we'll talk about Delaney's very action-packed, eventful adulthood. Yeah, there is a lot to go. There's a lot of content in his adulthood, as you might expect. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com slash support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you.
what a feeling. Feels go through the ceiling, whole oh, high. Hoopla, we fly to the sky, so high. Come, Josephine, in my flying machine, going up, she goes, up, she goes. Balance yourself like a bird on a beam in the air, she goes, there she goes, up. Up a little bit higher, oh my, the moon is on fire. Come, Josephine, in my flying machine, going up, hold on, goodbye. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine in My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archives. <laughs>